Awesome. Thank you, team. Thank you so much for leading us in our time of worship this morning. And kids, it's going to be a lot of fun here. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you if you wanted to stay right here and listen to me for the next half hour. But if you want to go to Woodside Kids, it's going to be a blast. You can go now. And as Bill had mentioned, if you're watching online, uh, there's some great material there for your family to enjoy and to keep growing in your faith um, through, the, through the materials there. Well, it's good to see everybody here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been a tumultuous week in our country, hasn't it? Uh, it's been one of those times where, you, boy, it's just it's hard to watch the news. You don't know what to trust. And you, some are concluding, you know, now you know where you can't trust. Um, and I want to assure you where you can trust. And that's the person who we've come to worship here today. I mean, I, I hope, I truly hope that the events of this week has increased your resolve to share Jesus. Because he truly is the hope of the world. He's truly the answer. Uh, he, he is. No, no passion of man for anything less than him is going to truly change the hearts of people. Um, and, that, and he's who we worship today. Uh, who, he's who you sang to. Uh, we declared his worthiness. We sang of his uh, miraculous work. Right? Um, Detroit Lions have their, um, their search for uh, front office staff and, uh, and things and um, I've never seen an article that has said, maybe this would be a good general manager because on his teams, their huddles have been incredible. They gather together, they arms in arms, they're so loving together. I mean, you can just tell it's a tight neck. No, they don't say that. They say when they're on the field and the game is in action, that's where production is made. But they do. Uh, enforce a culture of working together as a team. So that's what we're doing here. We're going to work on a culture of working together as a team, of loving one another, so that we are more effective as we reach the world for Christ. All right. Okay, complete this phrase for me, if you would, please. It's a simple phrase. I'll give you the first two words. You give me the last word. God is love. God is what? Able? King? First thing I heard is love. God is love. That's probably, it's probably the most frequent answer to that finish the phrase uh, that we would get. Although God is so much. Love is one of his hallmark attributes, for sure. God is holy. Some have said that's the most encompassing. Um, but God is love is, is pretty powerful. In fact, that's a quote. Right from 1 John chapter 4, it says God is love. It's strict, straight from the word of God. Not everybody would say that. Right? Some that are pretty angry with God might say God is, God is dead. Maybe some that have placed their faith and trust in technology and science and that we don't need, the, we don't need this thought of there's a higher power that we need to learn, lean on and trust in. We can, we've, got, we've got science, we've got technology that now we can actually accomplish things on our own. We don't need God. That idea is dead. Some would say uh, that God is disappointing. That though they believe that there is a 
the supreme being. Um, maybe they've become convinced because of some hardship in their life that maybe God doesn't know or God doesn't care or maybe God doesn't, um, isn't involved intimately with the affairs of men. Maybe it's just this big thing up there and just started the clock and lets it, lets it roll. So there are, maybe, maybe there's some people that say God is not. He's not there. There is no God. And this, this, it's an ancient idea. Um, never was true. Not true now. However, back to the, the most common answer. It probably is the most common answer from people, at least in our community here. If you were to say God is, they would probably, one of the top three answers anyway, would be God is, God is love. So it's a little bit surprising then when you hear this idea in the scripture that God hates. It's kind of jolting. In fact, you, you, you try to explain that away, that God hates. It's interesting that God hates, the scripture says God hates the evil man. You think, oh, wait a second. You're supposed to love the sinner but hate the sin. And then scripture says that God hates the evil person. Um, we wrestle with that. One of the passages of Scripture that clearly begins to make a list of things that God hates is the words of Solomon in, in Proverbs chapter 6, where it says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. So we sit up and take notice. Okay, that's strange. God hates these six or seven things. I better... Write these things down. If you were to make a list of what you think is on that list of six or seven things that God hates, it rejects. So knowing that, we shouldn't be surprised then that there is a type of love that the Lord rejects. Even though God is love, there's a kind of love or a direction of love that, the, that God says, this is not my kind of love. I reject this. Or you could even imply God hates this kind of love. And that's what we see in our passage of 1 John. We're studying this book, especially chapters 2 and 3 and a bit of chapter 4 over these next few weeks to help remind us that love is a virtue he calls us to as children of God. And this morning, in chapter 2, We'll be looking at verse 12 through verse 17, and we see that God rejects the world offers, the love that the world offers. God rejects the love that the world offers. This is the kind of love that the world says, you need to love this, and, the, and God says, no, I reject that kind of love. His love is not compatible with the love of the world. So we're going to see what that means. So verse 12 First uh, John chapter 2, if you ever have your Bibles, I encourage you to look there with me. We'll have the words on the screen. Um, but chapter, 12, chapter 2, verse 12 to 14, gives us a foundation that we need to stand on as we then look at the love that the Lord rejects. So here's, here's this foundation. In order to understand this command not to love the world, we need to embrace who we are in Jesus. Our identity is the foundation for what to love and what not to love. 
So first of all, we need to embrace who we are in Jesus. Verse 12. John is writing, and he begins with this. It's kind of a poem. It's a literary device uh, that he uses, kind of a poem to get started with this concept. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, some of you might read, listen to that and read that and think, uh, okay, is he talking to me or not? What, what do I need to pay attention to? What category do I fall into? Well, it's kind of like this. If, if I come and begin, begin our, our time together by saying this. Listen up, Algonac. Hey, everybody in the Blue Water area, check this out. Young and old, I've got something to say. Who would I be talking to? Raise your hand if you, thought, if you think you would have been included in that introduction. Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, well, you were. Because you're, you're in the Blue Water area, right? That's you. Young and old, <laughs> that's you. Pick whatever category you think you fit, right? Um, maybe, you're, maybe you started, out, hey, Algonac, listen up, and you think, Algonac, Cotterville. Algonac, Cotterville. <laughs> but then it's like a Blue Water area. Oh, that's kind of most of us. Well, maybe that's not me. Maybe you drove in because, you know. Everybody wants to be here on a Sunday morning, right, Joe? <laughs> but then I say young and old, and you think, okay, yeah, that's me. Well, that's the literary device that John is using in this passage. He is saying, this is for everybody. Young, old. Young men, old men. Everybody in between. This message is for you. Here's who you are. He begins with a, with a call of identity. He says, little children, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Hey, kids, God's forgiven you of, his, of your sin for his name's sake. Everything you've done in the past and in the future, that's the power of that phrase. It's, if, if you were to look at it in the original language, the Greek tense gives that perfect tense. In other words, this was something that was started and continues. This wasn't something that was simply done then and now something else happens and I got to go back and do it again. No, he forgave you of your sins and that forgiveness continues. So, so maybe, maybe you've been a believer for 15 years and you remember the power of that and recognizing that all your past and your failures have been washed in the blood of Jesus. But then since that 15 years has gone by, there's been times of great failure and you wonder, could God really forgive me of this too? So John says, yes! He's forgiven you of all that and what you did recently. And actually, his forgiveness continues over and beyond what you've even done to this point. Kids, forgiveness continues. He says, fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. He mentions it later and he says it again, almost duplicates his phrase. It's as if he's saying, hey, those of you that have have miles on your shoes, those that are chronologically advanced, you've been living long enough to know that God has never failed you. 
We've sing that song occasionally, right? He's never failed me yet. So I know that he's not going to fail me now because after all these years, and even though there was times where it sure seemed like he was failing, once I get beyond the crisis, I realize, oh, he didn't fail me. His grace still continues. And I, saw, I see his fingerprints all over that crisis of the past. So fathers, God's been there from the beginning. You know that. You've learned that. You've, you've lived long enough to know that nothing else can claim that, right? The job that you got, finally, my life is secure because this job that I've been dreaming for, I studied for, I prepared for, finally I have it, and, you're, and then suddenly it's, it's gone, economy tanks, and, and now what? So you know, learned that, that jobs aren't your security, You've learned that maybe a retirement account isn't security. You've learned that health isn't security. So those of you that have miles, you can tell everybody else that, yeah, actually God's the only one we can trust. He always comes through. So young man, you've overcome the evil one. You're strong. The next phrase there in the later, it says, you're strong and the word of God abides in you. Why are they strong? Why are young men strong, young men in the faith? Because they've learned that the word of God stands forever. As, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verse 11, your word have I hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. I can stand strong against the evil one because his word gives me that strength. Young men, you've discovered that. It's not your physical strength that he's lifting up. It's that spiritual strength. But it is like, like working out. Bill, how you feeling today? Pretty lousy. Bill started his workout, you know, and now that he's 29, he needs to, you know, keep that up. And he's moaning and groaning today because he's working out those muscles again, right? But he's doing that because he knows that's, how it, that's what it takes. It's going to take that exertion and working out to, to keep that strength and keep that body healthy. And John says, young men, you've discovered this, that it's not just passion. Passion can only get you so far. It's exercise. It's devotion to the Word of God. It's, it's every day being in the Word so that precept upon precept, line upon line, you're developing that strength in that spiritual man to stand against the evil one. So little kids, your sins are forgiven. You old dudes and dudettes, you know God was there from the beginning and he, can, he is faithful. Young man, you know it's the word of God that gives you the strength. That's who you are. You're people that have the word of God. I mean, some of you have it on your laps right there in front of you. Some of you have it in your devices, and you can choose which different translation or version to read. You, you, you're able to find resources to study intention and interpretation of the word. And so, You have such a treasure. And all this is based on the character of God. Little children, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. They're not forgiven because you're so clean now. They're not forgiven because you're the model citizen. You're, you're forgiven because he's a forgiving God. His character, his reputation's at stake. Because if he says, I have died once and for all, then that forgiveness has to continue because it's based on him. 
Right? So that's your identity. That's who you are. Embrace that today. If you place your faith in Jesus, then those things are true of you. And because of that, we can reject what the world offers to us. You can. The culture makes it very difficult. But your sins are forgiven. You have the word of God. And you've seen that God is faithful. So you can reject this. Look in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Now, who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to kids. He's talking about the old guys. And he's talking about the young people. So... All of us do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And, and the world is passing away along with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It says, do not love the world. That word love is the word agape, right? Some of you have looked at the word love in the scriptures, and you know there's several different words for love. Some is more an affectionate kind of love. Some is a brotherly kind of love, an infatuation. This is agape, which is how God is described as loving us. Agape love is sacrificial. It's committed. It's enduring. It's unconditional. Usually we think of agape love as either God's love for us or our love for him. God says, actually, you can have that kind of love for the world. You can live sacrificially committed to the things of the world. You can sacrifice and you can, make, you can pay the price so that you can get this. Right, so many people, even going into this COVID isolation season, came to the, God used it as a kind of grace for them because they came to the recognition that I've been neglecting my family all through these years because of the pursuit of this career. Now I can't go there. Now I'm with my family. I can invest where I need to. Right, so that that Christians have come up with all kinds of rationality for their abusing creation and. And in the environment with this, well, we're not supposed to love the world anyway, so what's it matter if we recycle or, um, you know, such things? That's ridiculous. That's not what God is talking about. He's not talking about our environment and our world. In fact, he defines what he means by the world in this passage. Did you see it? He says, if anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here's what I mean by the world, he's saying, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is the love of the world. The desires of the flesh. These are those human appetites, the, the physical appetites that you have. The things that make you feel good physically. It, it, it may be food. It may be sex, it may be drugs or alcohol, it may be uh, exercise, it may be what, whatever it is that just makes your body feel good. Loving that 
building a life of sacrificially committing, paying the price of other things so that this is your pursuit, that's part of loving the world because it's so temporary. It fades, it goes quickly. Those things come and go. You know, uh, you, you feed this appetite and pretty soon you're, it actually increases your hunger for it. Have you notice that? I eat that because I really want to eat that to satisfy a craving and then Pretty soon I find myself craving it more frequently. It's not that enjoying a diet or something to eat is, is a problem. It's the, it's the agape of it. It's the sacrificial committing, paying the price to pursue that, that physical appetite. Where we neglect healthy life principles for the pursuit of it. Secondly, it's the desire of the eyes. Whatever looks good. A nicer home, nicer car, nicer clothes. You see something material that you can buy or that you can acquire and you want it. And so you pay the price to accumulate it. Or you see something somebody else has and you look at what you have and you think, well, I should have that. And so then you pursue those things or, or you develop an um, a unhealthy dissatisfaction with what God's provided you, thinking that if you have more of something or an additional or a newer, then you'll be more happy. And you pursue it and you sacrifice and you're committed to pursue that. It's, it's the love of the world. Those things fade. That new phone, that iPhone 11 with those cool cameras. And you know, that is going to get it. And you know what's coming next? iPhone 12. 13, 14, pretty soon. Everything, everything that you pursue with the lust of the eyes is going to be needing replaced. It doesn't satisfy. Then there's a the pride of life. This is accomplishments, positions, respect, promotions. These are the things that, that seek to... Pursuing a legacy, a name for yourself, John says, don't love those things. Those things will fade. Those things won't satisfy. They're so temporary. That's not what you give your heart to because the things of this world will fade away. They won't last. And then to some, they'll say, as we read this, we'll say, well, that sounds a little bit like legalism, isn't it? I mean, I kind of break away from what is the checklist. Don't do those things. You need to do these things. So, okay, you just mentioned some things you probably shouldn't do. Really, is there a problem? In fact, you just said that our sins are forgiven, all the sins of the future. So doesn't that give me license to really do whatever I want because I'm forgiven anyway? Paul gives some really good wisdom. Uh, when he writes to the Corinthians, who were struggling with some of these things, pursuing uh, some things that rob them of attention to the things of Christ. And here's what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So is there forgiveness and grace? Yes, there is. But experiencing that grace will cause me to ask, will this pursuit be helpful in my walk with Jesus? 
or will it hinder it? Will this pursuit create a dependency towards something that's not of God? Will will that then become a controlling factor in my life if I pursue this? Paul says, here's how I've discerned what I should pursue and what I shouldn't. Is it beneficial? Does it build me and others up? Is it dominating? Is it, whether it's addictive or whether it creates this sense of obligation that robs you of more important pursuits. So is this, Paul in fact says, is this desire helping my life in Jesus? Is it building my love for God or is it hindering it? John would have known a man in Scripture named Demas. Just, just not, not, not to shame anybody, but has anybody, could anybody tell me the story of Demas in the Scripture? Anybody know that story? Yeah. Is that, we don't really know it. I was hoping you wouldn't say you did. I think, whoa, tell me, because the Bible doesn't really tell a story. But here's what it says. There's, there's two verses that talk about Demas in the New Testament. One In Colossians, Paul writes his letter, and like he does in many of his letters, he closes it by saying, hey, this dude says hi, and this guy says hi, and I want to say hi to this person, and that's how he ends it. And you can see his ministry team a lot of times by how he closes the letter. Well, he mentions Demas in that. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So we've understood that Demas was part of that team that served with Paul when Paul was in Rome, and Rome wrote these letters to the various churches, and Demas was there helping him and being part of that, of that ministry team that traveled to the different regions. The second time, and only other time Demas is mentioned, is about seven years later, when Scripture records, it's the last recorded words of Paul before, we assume, before his execution. So in 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, Paul is asking Timothy to come visit him because uh, he needed his parchments, he needed a robe because he was cold. Um, And this is what he says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That's all we know. We don't know exactly what happened, if there was a falling out. All we know is Paul's description was Demas, this one guy that was on our ministry team that traveled, that that served with us. He fell in love with the world. We assume it's either the the desire of things, it's, it's the lust of the flesh, or it's the pride of life. One of those aspirations for the world caused him to say, and actually it's probably more important than the kingdom of God. I'm pulling out. And he abandoned ministry. So all we know about Demas is he loved the present world and he pulled out of ministry. I don't want to be a Demas. Maybe, maybe Demas started the first chain of hamburgers in the Roman Empire, 
right? And maybe, maybe the golden arches looked very different back then, and Demas was the guy. I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he acquired a fortune. But Paul says, actually, he lost everything because he abandoned, he became in, came in love with the things of the world and neglected the things of the kingdom. Some of you are familiar with John Piper. He's a now retired pastor of, um, in Minnesota and of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minnesota. And he's, he's wrote prolifically. Um, he's a wonderful theologian and a pastor to pastors. He's, uh, his, his influence is wonderful. Well, about 20 years ago, uh, maybe even longer than that, 25 years ago, he spoke at a conference um, where 30,000 college students were attending. And it was a conference that was known for really inspiring young people to pursue the things of God. Um, Urbana is, was, the, was the conference. And um, God's used that in so many lives of young people as they get started in their life. And this conference, he, he preached a sermon that was entitled, Don't Waste Your Life, which is quite a poignant title, wouldn't you think? Don't Waste Your Life. It had such a remarkable influence on the lives of those students that he, he wrote a book of the same title based on the, the principles of that message. If you've never read Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper, I'd encourage you to get a copy of that. But in that sermon, in that book, he expanded on this teaching of living for the kingdom of God. And that's where true um, satisfaction is found. And when the glory of God is your pursuit and, and how you live your life built on making God famous is where you discover truly purpose for living and um, discovering how, that you are living out what you were created to do. God created you for his glory, to radiate his glory to the, to the world. And he ends the, ends the sermon with a story, a fictitious story, of a man that probably represents so many people in our culture, very well-respected people. Even, even um, we in the church would hold uh, many of uh, this type of a person up as a, as a, a good model. As a man that um, poured his life into his career and established great, great things and employed lots of people. And the business grew and, and his desire was to work hard now so that he could live like no one else later. Right? Maybe you've kind of heard that phrase. Um, and he was able to retire at a fairly young age and had a large nest egg. And he moved to the coast after traveling the world. He moved to the coast and, and where he could just retire comfortably, right? In the warmth and the sun and free from so many things pulling against him. And then died. And then he met God. In eternity, and God asked him that one key question What did you do with the life that I gave you? And the man began to list off his list of accomplishments and, um, and accumulation and um, pointed 
even to the retirement goal that he had and how he was able to acquire that and um, even to the, to the house on the beach that he was able to have. And, and he says, oh, one more thing. And then he gathered a bucket of seashells. And he said, look at the seashells I found. It leaves you with that sense of seashells. What have you done with my life? Well, I've, I've collected seashells. I worked so hard. So I get to that point where I, none of those things are bad. Please, if you take a vacation to Florida and you collect seashells, don't feel bad saying, hey, check out the seashells. I would love to see them, right? That's good. In fact, God created the world for our enjoyment. So that's fine. All-star team, you know, all-state, great. That's, that's wonderful to do. Successful in your, in your business, retiring early, nothing wrong with any of those things. The question is, is it agape for you? Because agape is to be directed only to God. And you'll never love people if you don't love God with all your heart and your soul in your mind, in your strength. Kids that are just about ready to make plans for going into the future, your sins are forgiven. All right, embrace that. Old people, <laughs> old, old men and women, I'm not going to make eye contact in this phrase. You have put a lot of miles on. You know that God has never failed you. He's never failed you. He's always been faithful. Young men, that you've had spiritual success, you know that spiritual success is because of the timeless truths of Jesus found in his word, and you've been able to overcome the evil one. You know these things. You've experienced these things. This is who you are. So don't love the world. Don't love the world. You can be in the world, and the things that God has placed in His world, the drive for, for har harnessing His creation, you know, that work ethic that He's given to us as humans, pursue that, use that. Establishing a good reputation, that's important to do. Providing for your family and having financial security so that you can be generous and you can care for those under your care, that's a good thing to do. But don't love the world. Sacrificial, committed affection and pursuit is for him. And he can't do both. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... First of all, giving us the understanding of agape love by loving us. That, Lord, you have loved us by sending your Son to die in the cross. I thank you, Lord, for um, giving us a, the breath of life and the pursuit of life. But we seem to continue to make idols Every culture, every generation, it seems like we create a new idol. And we end up with just a bucket of seashells at the end of our life. Many of those things we worked so hard for, we leave behind. And Lord, we also know that we can't change the past. 
but our future, Lord, begins today. And I pray that all of us from this point forward, truly, Lord, would live agape for you. That our love that sacrifices and commits and, and pays a price would be, would be focused on you. So cause us to understand what that means, Lord. We want to love you more. Thank you for speaking to us today. And give us wisdom for how now we live this out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.